16 is where we are reading today. Book of Zechariah, chapter number 14. We'll begin in verse number 1 this morning. Here's what the word of the Lord says to us. It says, the day of the Lord is coming. Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and His name, the only one, or the only name. The whole land from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah, but Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate, from the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses, and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited, never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. If any other peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague He inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. 
This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. On that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. I have attempted to explain the purpose and rationale for Zechariah giving this prophetic word to the people of Israel and all that it means. And if you're fairly new here, this is your first or second time, maybe uh, or you weren't here those Sundays when I mentioned it. Maybe you're not quite sure of what's going on, but Zechariah is, is known as what's called a post-exilic prophet. And if you know anything about the history of the people of Israel, during the ancient times and the times of the Old Testament writings, of course, David rose up as king over Israel. And David served and him and Solomon uh, expanded the nation of Israel to really probably become the greatest power on earth at that time. And they were a very prosperous nation. God's blessing was upon their life. And after Solomon, or even during the time of Solomon, the people began to backslide and walk away from God and serve false gods. And after the death of Solomon, his son came to power and the nation of Israel was split between the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel or the northern and southern kingdoms. And this continued on for hundreds of years. And after Solomon's reign, there were kings who were good and loved God and served God and were faithful to God, but there were so many more kings that were wicked and idolatrous and did such evil, wicked things. Finally, after hundreds of years, God grew tired of their rebellion against Him and their backsliding and their waywardness against Him. And, and He warned them through prophets like Jeremiah and others that you had better turn to God or I am going to bring your land into captivity and they failed to turn to God and that is exactly what happened the Babylonian empire came in took over the land of Israel took many of the people away from Jerusalem their capital city destroyed and plundered the area left it as a place of desolation and this went on for a period of 70 years. But then King Cyrus, the king of Persia, who was the world power at that time and who was king over the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel there, he issued a decree that the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, could go back to their homeland and be restored. And so they began to go back. But of course they went back fearful. They went back without weapons. They went back without money. It went back without all these things that were necessary to have a strong and vibrant city and nation at that time. And so they began to get discouraged in rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the homeland that they were from. And God began to send them prophets, and Zechariah is one of these prophets that were sent to encourage them 
to continue on the work that God has called them to do. All right, he encouraged them to remain strong, to remain steadfast in, in the work of rebuilding the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But of course, what the Jews didn't know, and what Zechariah didn't know, and what they were not able to see clearly was God's ultimate purpose and plan for the world. And the purpose and plan of God is not just that the Jews might live in Jerusalem and have a homeland, and we have a nation on our map that's, that's known as the nation of Israel. That is not the ultimate plan and purpose of God for the world. The, the plan of God was ultimately and is ultimately that God Himself would come and live here on earth with His people. His people, not just Jews, but His people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every language and that there would be a, a world that's united under the headship and the leadership of Jesus Christ and the world be a re in statement, if you would, of the Garden of Eden, the perfect paradise of God. A world with no trouble and no pain and no heartache, no tears as we sing about, where God lives with us and He is our God and we are His people. And that is the plan. That is the dream that we hold on to. That is the goal that we are striving for all of these thousands of years later, we look with anticipation to what is known as the coming day of the Lord. And even though we are not here rebuilding Jerusalem, we're not here rebuilding a city, we're not wondering if an enemy is going to come and physically attack us, we are here with the reality that we do have an enemy who wants to come. And attack, maybe not us physically, but attack our hearts and our minds and our souls. We have an enemy who wants to discourage us. We have setbacks and trials that come in our life as a result of living in a world that is cursed and has fallen from God. We get up each and every day and there are struggles and trials that we must go through. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's financial or emotional or relational. The heartaches come, troubles come, trials come. And yet, the words of Zechariah here come and they encourage our hearts. They encourage our soul. They stir us. They, they burst something deep within our heart when it seems like everything is going against us. And we remember that there is coming a day unlike any other day. And we pray like the words of the hymn writer, Lord, haste that day. Lord, come soon. Maranatha, come. Lord Jesus, and, and this morning I want to remind you of that truth. I want you to remember that because from everything I'm hearing, it's going to be cold and snowy outside. It's already been cold. I've had enough of it already. We're not even in winter yet. I want to remind you because a place where you're working, it's going gangbusters and building and expanding. There will probably come a time when they will begin to say, you know what, we have to lay people off. 
I want you to remember that because you're going to go to the doctor one day and you're not going to feel right and he's going to tell you something that you're not going to want to hear. But you need to remember there is coming a brighter day, a more glorious day. Life is going to throw each of us a curveball and we're going to find ourselves going off the rails. But in the midst of it all, we remember that Jesus is coming again. And everything we are going through will be worth it all. And so we get in this text and we notice as our first point this morning, the coming day of the Lord. The coming day of the Lord. We're told there in verse 1 that there is coming a day. Notice what, what Zechariah wrote down. He said, a day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem. A day of the Lord is, is coming. This is what is known as, as in the Bible as the day of the Lord. It's a familiar word when you read through prophetic literature, but perhaps you've read that several times and, and you're not really sure what it all means. Let me explain it to you this way. It is an expression used by Old Testament prophets to signify a time in which God actively intervenes in history, primarily for judgment. This is known as the day of the Lord or also as the day of the Lord's anger. Sometimes this day is used in the Old Testament to speak of a past judgment. But more often it's an impending future judgment that is in view. Ultimately though the term refers to the climatic future judgment of the world. Oftentimes prophecy speaks of a near future event and an end time prophecy and merge them all together. The immediate judgment being a preview of the final day of the Lord. The prophet Isaiah talked about that in Isaiah 13 verses 5 through 10. He talks about the prophecy of, of Babylon coming to judge the people of Israel. And yet at the same time we realize it is referring to the ultimate Judgment against God, against the whole earth. Jesus combined events described there in Isaiah 13 with other prophecies to explain His second coming in Mark chapter 13. Another example is Joel's prophecy of the day of the Lord in Joel chapter 1 through Joel chapter 2. Though the prophet initially spoke of God's judgment on Israel by a locust plague, that judgment also talked about a final day of the Lord far beyond Joel's time. And that day of the Lord extended from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon this world and also to the end of the ages. The final day of the Lord is characterized in the Bible as a day of gloom and darkness and judgment. Associated with God's judgment is language depicting changes in nature especially a darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. We read often that nations will be judged for their rebellion against God's people, but also God's people, the Jews, will be judged for their rebellion against us. But in the midst of it all, we are told, prophets also, always, I should say, give us hope that a believing remnant will be saved by looking to the Messiah. Following the judgment, the future day of the Lord will be a time of prosperity, restoration, and blessing in all the earth. In the New Testament, it's the same. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8, the day of the Lord Jesus. 
The day of Christ, Philippians 1 verse 10, are more personal and positive. They point to final events related to Christian believers who will not experience the wrath of God. When that day comes, the earth will be renewed and purified through a judgment, a fire as we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3. In Revelation, this final purging comes. It lets us know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so what we are talking about here is a, is a day where God comes and brings final judgment on this world and turns this world upside down and it is totally different from anything that we are familiar with, anything we have ever experienced before. And of course we debate and we argue about how this is going to play out and how things are going to end up, how things are, are, are actually going to unfold in the end times. We don't know exactly how it's going and, and different believers have different opinions on what's going to happen. Is the Lord going to come? And then there's going to be a tribulation. Is the Lord going to come? And then there's going to be a, a millennial reign. Is, is He just going to come at the end and there's only going to be one coming of the Lord? These are things we all can debate about and discuss about and argue about over a cup of coffee and Whatever else you like to have, but the reality is, no matter how you see it, there is a truth that is known throughout Scripture. Is that there is coming a day when the history of this earth is changed. When time is no more and everything is new. When God creates a, a new heaven and a, a new earth and, and it's restored and there is no more pain or sin or devil or anything else ever to bother us again. There is coming this day. But we notice that during this day, and this is my second point here this morning, during this day, during this time, the people of God are attacked. Attacked and devastated. Before this day comes when God redeems and rescues, we notice the people of God are attacked, they're destroyed, they're plundered. They go through hard times. We're talking about a, a period of time, a, a time in human history when we see the devastation of God's people, the attack that is levied simply for believing and trusting that the Lord is God and Savior of all. Zechariah 14 verse 2 tells us, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women will be raped. Half of the city will go into exile. Doesn't sound very pleasing, does it? Doesn't sound very encouraging. Oh boy, you're, you're hearing her tell me that trusting and having faith in God means... Devastation and attack and plunder? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. Unfortunately, the answer of following Christ often means hardship and persecution. A report came out earlier this year from the Pew Research Center. It showed that Christians still remain the most persecuted religious group in the world. The report from 2016 showed that Christians were harassed in 144 countries, up from 128 the year before. 
The center reported that the numbers of countries with high or very high levels of government restrictions on religion also arose from 25% of countries to 28% in 2016. 55 countries out of 198 in this world persecute and are hostile and attack Christians. And Paul says this is the largest percentage of countries that have very high or very high levels of government restrictions since 2013, although the peak was 29% in 2012. The point is, the people of God around the world undergo sometimes very, very severe persecution simply because of their faith in Christ. Jim shared a story at the beginning of service, but another guy that was there at that conference we went to yesterday was a young man who began to hear about the claims of Christ on the radio through Transworld Radio, and he became a follower in Christ. And at 16 or 17 years old, he went in and he told his family who are devout Muslims. He was kicked out of his family and for two years was homeless. Can you imagine that? 16, 17 year old homeless because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Because you simply choose to follow Christ. We say, oh no, he's talking just about the Jews, but the fact of the matter is Jews are are just as persecuted. The rise of anti-Semitism in this world is going stronger and stronger and stronger. But the reality is, following Christ often comes at a price. And I know you all thought, well, I came to get my spiritual high and my spiritual fix this morning, and you're kind of killing it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Sorry about that. But it is the truth. It is a reminder to us while we are here on earth, even if we don't face persecution, and thank God we live in this country and you all drove here freely and Excuse me, as far as I know, you can go outside and your license plate is exposed. You've got your cell phone on and you're telling everyone through your smartphone exactly where you are. Nobody's doing anything about it. We're blessed to live in this land that we are. But this is a reminder to us. No one follows Christ is immune from persecution and trouble. In fact, Jesus said these words in Matthew 24, verse 9, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Even in our own country, we see hatred because of what we believe and live for and stand for. Values that we hold dear. The fact that we believe that the word of God is true and right often leads to persecution in our own land. So just as Zechariah prophesied about and others throughout scripture have mentioned, the people of God face and have faced and will continue to face trials on every hand simply because of their trust in Christ. But notice here, Not to just leave you totally discouraged and depressed, our third point this morning is this, but God intervenes. God intervenes. And He rescues. He rescues His people. 
You see, and this is the story. This is the hope that we look at. This is a hope that we cling to that, yes, in the middle of our hard times, in the middle of trial and persecution and devastation and troubles on every hand, we cling to a hope and a reality that God is going to intervene on our behalf. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations, I'll fight against Jerusalem. But look at what verse 3 says, then the Lord will go out. And he will fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. In other words, we think things can't get any worse. We realize that things can't go any further. And it seems like the history of this world and the end game of this world is total devastation and annihilation and the enemy has won, we are told there is coming a day when God will go out and fight against these people. Verse 4, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will be split in two, forming a great valley. Verse 5, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. What's going on here? What's happening in the nick of time? Christ comes. Christ fights for his people. When we think that the end of the world, it can't get any worse, we know there is coming a day when every eye will see him. We will look upon the one that we have pierced, as we, as we talked about a week or two ago, and Christ will show himself, and we will see him face to face. And on that day, his people will be redeemed and delivered and set free from all the attacks of the enemies. Verse 12, again, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouth. Not a very pleasant picture to be sure but, but he's telling us that God will come and will bring such judgment that the enemies of God will totally be destroyed and wiped out be in such panic that they'll seize each other by the hand they'll attack destroy them Judah too will fight at Jerusalem verse 14 the wealth of all the nations we gathered Great quantities of gold and silver, a similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys. Oh, the truth of the matter is, when you think things can't get any worse, we know that Jesus is going to come again and he will reign victorious. He will reign triumphant. He will stand on this world on the Mount of Olives and his enemy will be destroyed once and for all. And this is a picture that we see throughout the pages of the Bible. Matthew 24 and 25 tell us about the coming of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4 reminds us again. 1 Corinthians 15 shows us that as we are resurrected, or as Christ was resurrected, He will come again and we will rise again with us. And Revelation is all about what these prophets saw in part and John sees in a greater part, understanding the triumph of Jesus Christ over this world. Listen to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. 
says, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and he wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Verse 14, the armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name read, King of kings and Lord of lords. 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and the riders and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Here's the good part in Revelation 19, verse 20. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now, I know what I'm reading to you this morning, what I'm sharing this morning, it's not really pleasing and palatable, right? Why am I talking about flesh rotting on people and birds coming and gorging themselves on rotten flesh? And you think, this isn't very pleasing stuff. And understand a couple things, a lot of times when the Prophets wrote in the Bible, they wrote in what is symbolic language. Do I think that Jesus is going to come again with a sword sticking out of his mouth? Probably not. But we know that his word is that two-edged sword that pierces to the very heart of our being. The word of God now, the Bible, is what gets into the very depths of our heart. And when we see him come again, His word will penetrate the heart of every person. And everyone will understand that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you see, this is a a hope. This is an, an encouragement to us as we go through this veil of sorrows, this trail of tears that we are walking on. We know that this life isn't all there is. We know that this isn't it. We look around so many times and we see the trouble and heartache that life brings us. We sit there day by day and we hear the reports on the news of wars and rumors of wars. We get phone calls of loved ones and friends who have gone on and passed away. We see 
this veil of tears that we are living in, and we think, is this really all there is to it? And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not. God is on our side, and God is coming again, and we will see Christ in everything that we are facing in this life. One day will be over. And that leads me to our fourth point here this morning, and that is this. There is a new heaven and new earth where peace and righteousness dwell. See, after Jesus comes again, this coming day of the Lord is over. There is a new day dawning in this world. A new day like we have never seen or experienced before. Verse 6 of Zechariah 14 says, On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. I don't know if the translator of the NIV lived in Pennsylvania, but it seems like we've had days of cold, frosty darkness, haven't we? (laughs) It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord in His name. The only name. See, we can't imagine it. We can't picture that because we get out our phones and we look at the weather on our phones and it tells us darkness, coldness, sun setting at 3 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever time it does. It seems like it's so early. Chance of snow, chance of flurs. We, we don't understand that. We get up in July and it's 125 degrees and the humidity is 85 billion percent. It's, it's so hot and miserable. See, on that day, it will be totally different. Revelation tells us that there's no need for the sun or moon because the Lord, the Lord himself is the light of the city. God himself is is the one who brings light to all of the world. Verse 11 tells us that Jerusalem will be safe and secure, inhabited forever. I don't know how all this works out. Jesus said in eternal kingdom we're not married. I know there's coming a day when Mary will not look at me Right after I'm in bed and I'm warm, say, you need to make sure the front door's locked. <laughs> Why don't you get up and check it? It's cold out there. Nice kick to the back and I'm out checking the door, right? There will be a day of safety, peace forevermore. Verse 14 tells us the wealth of the nations will come into the city. Never again will you sit there and say, How can I be out of money? It's only the 25th. I got six more days to go. Why does this month have to have 31 days? I'll never lack for food. Never lack for enough again. Verses 20 and 21. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. 
Everything will be holy to the Lord Almighty. I don't don't know if you're going to ride a horse that literally says holy to the Lord on it. The point of this is everything will be pure and purified and sacred. Even our cars will be holy and sacred before God. Everything we eat will be pure, set apart before God. Never again worrying about salmonella or food poisoning, whether or not we drink the water or do we have to boil the water and all this, none of this stuff that we go through. Will we ever experience again? Again, shades of this in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. First heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His God, and God Himself will be with Him, and He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. Did you find yourself shedding tears and crying this last week? There's coming a day when you will never, never do that again. Never feel that pain in your bosom. You'll never feel that stomach twisted in knots and ulcers and and heartache and stress that we feel. It will all be gone and this is the hope that we have. This is what we look for. This is what we strive for. This is what we long for as believers. As we go through this veil of tears, this life of sorrow and pain, we look forward to this coming day and He comes again. What is this application? What can we take from this passage? What can we do about this passage? Let me give you three quick things here and then we'll be done. First one is this. We will have troubles and trials and persecutions in this world. You're going to have it. It's going to lead you to disappointment. It's going to lead you to discouragement. You're going to face times where you wonder, God, where are you? You. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 just real quickly here and go through a few verses. Paul said these words, We have this treasure in jars of clay. You know what he's saying? He's saying you are like that dollar store coffee mug that you probably broke and threw in the trash last week. Or am I the only one that breaks coffee cups and glasses? <laughs> Probably not. But he's, he's saying, look, just the wrong thing, and, and you're broken, and you're shattered. He's saying, we have this treasure, this treasure of God in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side. We are not crushed. We are perplexed. We're not in despair. We are persecuted, not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus 
so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For he, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the cost of bringing the gift of life, eternal life to you has been great personal sacrifice. I'm always feeling the crushing weight of this world. I'm always feeling the, the, the bruises. There's a man who had been beaten four or five times, 39 times each time he was beaten. A man who spent a day and a half in the ocean wondering if he was going to live. So we don't go through that, but we go through our share of heartaches and disappointments in this world. But my second thing is this. We look forward. We look forward to the triumph of our coming king. We look forward to, even in the midst of, of this heartache, even in the midst of, of saying goodbye to a loved one and, and seeing their casket lowered into the ground, we look forward to the day when God is going to raise them up. Again, verse 13 in 2 Corinthians 4, It is written, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. The same power that rose Christ from the dead lives inside of us. I will rise when he calls my name. I will rise on that great and final getting up morning, as they used to say. I will be with the Lord forever, and that leads me to my final point. This gives us hope to press on. This gives us hope to press on day after day. Verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, again, this is written by a guy who was beaten several times, who was left in the ocean for dead, who was thrown in prison more times than not who went through immeasurable heartache, stuff that we have never seen before. He said, we do not lose heart because these are light and momentary troubles and they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. This gives me hope. Gives me hope. This gives me hope. So mentioned, and Jim mentioned already. I saw we met men yesterday who had been thrown in prison in Iran and China simply because of their faith in Christ. They're led in worship by a man whose father was killed in Iran because of his faith. 
talked about his struggle forgiving those that had taken his father from him as a teenage boy. But in each and every one of the testimonies of these guys, we heard the same thing. We're longing for something greater and something better. We're longing for something that we have never seen before. And that is where each and every one of us are in this life. They say it may not be in the form of persecution. It just may be in the form of getting up day after day and going through the daily hardship and struggle of life. We do it longing for something better, desiring something greater. This is not all there is to it. There is coming a day when Jesus will come again. And I ask you this question. Well, let me ask you two questions. Number one, are you ready to meet him when that day comes? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he died for your sins, that he stands ready to forgive you if you will simply ask him to? You say, I don't need him. I can do it on my own. I can live on my own. Maybe you can. Again, the Bible tells us one day everyone will bow before him and acknowledge that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. If you are here and you have not given your life to Christ, there is a day when it will be too late. But this I know, this is not that day, unless it is going to happen later on. Right now, God stands ready to forgive you. Right now, we remember that Jesus Christ came and was born of a virgin and died on the cross for our sins. And all who will come to him and bow their knee and say, Lord, come into my heart and forgive me of my sins, they will be saved. You say, I've done bad things. It doesn't matter. God says, I forgive you. So if that is you and you need to accept Christ, right now, today is that moment. The second thing, though, I say, is for those of you who are believers who feel yourself weighed down, pressed down, burdened, you feel the weariness and heartache of this world. Maybe it's in your physical body. It hurts so bad and you're sitting there thinking, I wish you'd hurry up and finish so that I can go home. Maybe it's in your family and you're feeling the weariness, your hair's turning gray, the struggle. Maybe it's financial and you think, I just, I just don't know if I could make it again. Got to fight another again. They're talking about a cold winter, whatever it is. I challenge you this morning. I know these things are hard. I know they're difficult. I challenge you to remember this. There's coming a day when it will all be gone. And you will be with him forever. And you know what you will say? You will not stand there. And we've probably all been in a conversation like this where someone starts complaining and someone starts telling you how much worse their life is and then all of a sudden we're trying to top each other. My life is far worse than yours. 
we will not be there. We will look back and we'll say, God, that was such a small thing. That was such a hard, such a simple thing compared to being in your presence forever. I challenge you this morning, remember this, there is coming a day and no heartaches will come. Sing that song to you. If you need a copy of it, talk to Bonnie. She'll give you her copy. At least I hope she will. <laughs> Probably should ask her beforehand. There's coming a better day for us. I mean, let's pray this morning, shall we? Lord, I don't remember what the ancient Jews went through. I don't remember, I don't understand and see the struggles that they had as they long for the homeland. But God, I, I feel like I'm in the same place. Lord, I, I know I'm as American as they get, but I often feel like this country is not my home. I want something better, something greater. Lord, I go through things in my own life and I think, when will it ever end? When will I ever feel good and feel wonderful again? When will I ever not get a phone call from someone saying, this has happened and it's so bad? find tears welling up in my eyes again, thinking, how long, Lord? Lord, I know it's true. I know it's real. I know you are coming soon. Lord, as we sang already, even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and take it all away. Come. Give us a new heaven and a new earth. That righteousness and peace and justice finally, finally reign on this earth. Let there be a place where children are no longer hurt, where people are no longer coming against people simply because of the color of their skin. We're not trampling down each other because we're in political parties that are different. Let there be a place where we don't have to drive